Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends upon the law, then it, is no, then it no longer depends upon the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come could be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot going on in that passage. It's a long, complicated idea that Paul is trying to get through. And so as we venture into this text, would you pray with me, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, it seems like such a bold thing to come before you presuming upon your welcome, presuming upon your grace, that the one person in the universe that could hold everything over our head would give us grace and mercy instead. It seems so bold. It seems to do violence to how we think about the world and how we deal with people on a regular basis. But Lord, let it be true. And Lord, let us live into that truth. As we've seen over and over in Galatians, there is freedom for the asking. There is salvation and rescue for the needy. Lord, let that be true again of us this morning. Let it be true of us as individuals and as a church, that we would be a place that loves the gospel, that lives in the gospel and lives out of it, and therefore gives freedom and forgiveness to ourselves and to others. Lord, teach us more about this path, more about this life as we look at this text this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a network on TV uh, called the Style Network, or at least there was. It's now defunct. But on that network, uh, there was a show called Big Rich Texas, and it follows rich moms and their daughters around Dallas in their daily lives through 
homecomings, through engagements, through weddings, through cosmetic surgery and Botox, uh, through shopping, and because it's Texas, adult baptisms. I'm sure you've seen the show. Any fans in here? I won't make you raise your hand. But one of the daughters is going to get baptized. She has uh, given evidence of believing in Jesus, and so the next logical step is baptism. And so in Big Rich, Rich Texas, you actually hire a consultant to come and detail your baptism party. And the first thing that the consultant tells them is that, well, we needed to establish the place of the baptism. And she says, you can have it in a lake, you can have it in a river, or you can have it in a pool, or even in a church. She tells the family about the right colors for the dress and the type of cut for the dress, uh, flattering but not too revealing because, after all, it's a baptism, and the appropriate type of cake and the dress for the godmother and details for the after party. And it's this affair that is probably as expensive as most people's weddings are. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's probably not what Paul is talking about in verse 27. Paul is trying to get the Galatians to remember who they are in Jesus. And he points to something that might strike us as a bit odd. He points to baptism. And if you're new here, if you're considering faith, exploring faith, then you don't have necessarily a real connection with church history, then maybe baptism sounds a bit superstitious and odd, more of a ritual. Maybe you've been in the church your entire life, and you were baptized in an infant, as an infant, and so you don't really much remember or think about your baptism. Or maybe you were baptized in a, as an adult, and it seemed very significant at the time, but it's sort of old news now. You don't think about it much. Well, this word has a lot of different ideas, a lot of different things that we attach to it, and there's some misunderstanding about this word. And so I want to look at it today in a way that I hope helps you understand who Jesus Christ is and who you are in Jesus Christ. Now he says, first of all, verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Or maybe a more literal translation would be everyone who has been baptized into Messiah has been clothed with Messiah. Messiah is another difficult, another strange word. But you probably know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It wasn't on the mailbox when he was growing up. It wasn't Jesus and Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a, is a title that Jesus was given, and it's a Greek equivalent of a Jewish idea, the coming one, the anointed one, the one who will bring peace, who will bring shalom. That's what Christ meant as it was attached to Jesus. That was who he was meant to be. And everyone, it says, who is baptized into Christ or into Messiah has been clothed in him. For us, baptism is sort of this religious, sacramental word. But in ancient times, baptism was a very common word. It meant washing for one. And there's passages in the Bible about washing or baptizing furniture. There's passages about how the Pharisees got very angry with Jesus because he didn't baptize his hands before dinner. 
It also means, can mean dipping, it can mean plunging, it can mean ablution, or even the dyeing of fabric would be called baptism in the ancient world. So there's many different meanings, and it's a very common word. But in all of these cases, what is happening? Something about the object is being changed. Something is cleansed or washed, or in the case of dye, the color soaks in and the fabric itself changes in its appearance. Paul is connecting a religious ceremony with a fairly commonly understood word. And in baptism is done with water, but what does he say? It's not into water that you go. Very interesting language. You are baptized into Christ, into Messiah. Now, there's some evidence, and this is very interesting, actually a lot of evidence. If you look at ancient Christian art and ancient liturgies in the early days of Christianity, when one was baptized, they took off all of their clothes and were baptized naked. Now, growing up, we used to have high attendance Sundays in our Baptist church, and I think that would probably do it. If that was how we did baptism, we're not going to institute that here this morning or any time in the future. But they took off all of their clothes to come to baptism, and then afterwards they were given a white robe to enfold them into this new life, this new identity. It's a very powerful image. And this was the moment in the early church, and really if we follow what baptism is, it is that moment for us as we are baptized now as well. This is the moment by which their lives and their destinies and their very identities were bound up with Jesus, with the Christ, with the Messiah. Simon Chan is a professor in Singapore, and he talks about the act of baptism and how it's seen uh, in sort of the non-Christian traditional religions in China or in Singapore as the most critical moment in a person's life. And the traditional Chinese do not mind their children going to church. In fact, sometimes they encourage it as a multicultural experience, as something that they can learn, that they can grow in their knowledge of the world and so forth. The church can teach you many things, but they all say, don't get baptized. Because if you get baptized in that very moment, you burn your bridge with your family and with traditional religion. In some ways, they understand baptism better than many Christians do. What baptism is saying is that your old identity, your old self, your old way of life is being washed off, and you are entering into an entirely new way of being. Did you read the quotes in the front of the bulletin in preparation? What does Shakespeare say? I take thee at thy word, call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. Baptism is a new identity. It's a new way of life. It's bringing you into the life and the story of Jesus, the life and the story of Messiah. And if that's true, then we should know that story. What is that story? What is the story of Messiah? You need to know Jesus' story, and believe it or not, it doesn't start at Christmas. It starts much farther back. It begins at creation where a creator God made a good, loving, peaceful, beautiful world, but that that world went wrong and began to unravel and it began to cave in on itself and destroy itself. And the people that God created 
for loving relationship with him begin to reject him and go their own way and choose to be their own lords and masters. And I suppose that there's many ways that God could have rectified that situation. There's many different plans that he could have conceived of. Some could have been much more simple, much more straightforward than what we experience in the world. But as, all good sto- as with all good stories, there's tension, there's drama, there's character development, there's failure. And Jesus' story has all of that. God chooses one person, that is Abraham, who would embody God's purposes to redeem this world gone wrong. And it would be through this one family that God would bless all the families of the world, all nations, in fact, and heal what had gone wrong. But there's a problem. Because if you read Genesis, even through the first number of chapters, you realize that the family of Abraham is just as messed up as the rest of the world. And you see this true of Israel throughout the prophets. Pick up any prophet and read it. There's a problem with Israel. They are acting just as the rest of the world is. It's as if the doctors have the same disease that they are called upon to cure. And this is what Paul is talking about in verses 23 through 25, and really all of the complicated verses that I read. And I've got, I don't know, 15 commentaries on Galatians, and on some passages there's a paragraph of commentary, but in this chapter, in these verses, there's probably 30 or 40 pages in each commentary about it. And I read them all on your behalf, because that's the kind of pastor I am. (laughs) Not quite. But it's very complicated. So let me try and make some of those long thoughts, the sophisticated thoughts, a little bit more simple and straightforward. And then we'll end by giving you four practical applications very briefly. But verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up. There's this sense of imprisonment. There's this sense that you are held in custody. You're in protective custody. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. This family through which God meant to redeem the world, they needed something. And what does it say here? They needed supervision. They needed to be in custody, protective custody. Think of it as they were given uh, an au pair. They were given a babysitter. They were put in protective custody because they were just like the rest of the world. And God puts his people, beginning with the law, into quarantine until such a time as God, in his faithfulness to fulfill his promise to put things right, had come. Stay with me. A little bit complicated, but it's important to the whole argument of Galatians. So the law, verse 24, was our guardian until Christ came. Law, as we've talked about, is Torah. It's the Ten Commandments. It's kosher laws. It's the holiness laws and food laws, the things that separated Israel from other nations, the things that held them in a special relationship. These things were the babysitter for Israel until the promises could finally be revealed. And they were kept that way. They were kept in custody until, verse 23, until faith comes. Paul isn't talking here about our faith. He's taught, the word best, is best translated faithfulness, 
not ours, but God's faithfulness to bring about His promises. In verse 25, he says, Now that this faithfulness has come, we are no longer under a guardian, no longer subject to the babysitter. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, through His faithfulness. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male and female, but you are all one. Do you see all of those delineating features that carved out Israel in this special relationship, all of these external features that made them different from those in the world are now done away with? The thing that makes them different now is that they are baptized into Christ himself, that they are baptized into Messiah. If you belong to Christ, then you all are Abraham's seed. Down the corridors of time, we now, if you are in Christ, if you are in the church, you are Abraham's seed. That is, the promises that were given to Abraham are taking shape in the communities of faith now. The mature, full expression of God's promises come to fruition in the purpose or in the person of Jesus. In other words, he is the true Israelite. In him, you begin to see what those promises were meant to bring forth. In Him, you begin to see what life was meant to be like in the original creation. In Him, you get to see what your life is meant to look like. He comes to fulfill God's original intentions for the world. And what it looks like is human beings relating to God, not based upon what they do, not based upon the external features and practices of holiness, but based upon Jesus' faithfulness for them on their behalf, based upon Jesus' welcome and grace. And it, what does life look like inside these new communities? Well, they're diverse. There's no special people. Everyone gets a seat at the table because of Jesus. There's a relationship now between God that is not far off. And those things that we used to define ourselves by and justify ourselves by, gender, morality, power, all of the things that we use in our own life to separate ourselves from other people and to look down upon them, those things are eviscerated because Jesus has come. He's fulfilled everything that those things pointed to. And for the Galatians, Paul's argument to them is that it's not keeping of the law, it's not the kosher, it's not circumcision that makes you right with God. What is it? He's saying, don't go back to the babysitter. You're a full-grown adult now. The babysitter did a good job, and it was, it was fine for the time. But you're grown up now. Don't go back to the au pair. Because baptism, your baptism tells you that you are not, that you are clothed not in your righteousness, but in Him. His life, His story is your life and your story. Now, why baptism? We say all of that to get to this point because we're talking about baptism this morning. 
Now, why baptism? Why this type of ceremony? Well, that would be a much longer sermon. But think about how baptism is a contrast to everything that we're told in life. Through life, we're told, be something, do something, make something. Be special. Write your own story. Make a name for yourself. But you see, that's Big Rich Texas. That's baptism that is about the person, not about the promises of God coming upon the person. Our baptism is a celebration. It should be a party. But it's not a party, first of all, for us. It's a party because of God's promises coming upon us. And that's to be celebrated. Baptism is something that is done to us. It comes upon us. It's not something that we do or we make, but we receive it. And what do you receive? You receive a new identity, a new way of relating to God, a new way of being human. Practically speaking, let me leave you with this, because there's a lot of sort of abstract, exegetical things going on in this passage and what we've been talking about so far. But let me give you four very practical things. Baptism tells you four things. Baptism tells you that you're forgiven. Baptism tells you that you're forgiven. It puts you into a family of forgiveness. Now, I know many of you, and not all of us, come from families of forgiveness. I know many of your stories, and many of the stories have heartache and grief. All of our stories have some of that. But some of us grew up in families where our faults and our failures weren't things that our parents, parents like to forgive us of, but things that our parents like to remind us about. And friends, that's not the way that things are supposed to be. That's not the way that families are meant to work. And so God gives us this ideal image of a family, of the way that Jesus relates to His Father, and that He gives that relation to us, that relationship of freedom and grace and mercy everlasting. You are clothed with Jesus in baptism, and you have a tangible sign that you are forgiven once and for all. Verse 24 says, The law was our guardian until Christ Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Again, not our faith, not what we have given to God so that then He justifies us, but He justifies us through His faithfulness. Our faith, our believing is an instrument of that, but it is not the means. It is not the merit. If you are in Him, though you are full of faults, though you are still full of failures, you can be justified. You can be made right. You can be forgiven. Baptism is something that you do, but it's not the means of salvation. It's its sign and its seal. It is something important. Baptism is not the sign of us turning to the new life as much as it is the new life that is turned to us. You see, it's not where we take the mic and we say what we have done for God about this new resolution, this new life that we have chosen. It's not us taking the mic and talking about what we think of God but it's God taking the mic and telling everyone what He thinks of us. 
That's part of what baptism is. It tells you that you are forgiven. Secondly, it tells you that you matter. It tells you that you matter. No longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. These identifications, these markers, these status symbols or lack thereof, that was your lot in life in the ancient world. And we have different status symbols and different markers now, but in the ancient world, you were born into it. You either had status or you didn't. And Paul is saying that it's not your outward life, Galatians. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your gender. It's not your power. None of that is what brings you to Christ. None of that is why you matter. You matter because in Him, you have been joined with Christ, with the Messiah. Verse 17, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. What does that mean quickly? 430 years is, roughly speaking, the time between Abraham, the first promises, the first covenant, and the time of Moses, when the law came, when Torah came. Between this first covenant, where God called one family to be his representative family, through which he would bring reconciliation, between that time and the time of Moses, the law, he is saying that the law does not replace the first covenant, that first promise. The law came and cordoned Israel off, but really the first prior promise is that Israel was meant to be a blessing to all nations, that they were to be a missional tribe bringing God's presence to bear upon the world and inviting others into relationship. The first covenant is still binding, though God's people messed it up, he was faithful to bring his promises fully mature to bear in the person of Jesus Christ. That is still the purpose of God's family. It is to be, to receive God's blessing, not to be a reservoir that holds it in, but to extend that blessing to other people. That's the way it's always been and always will be, to be a community that is a foretaste of heaven to be a community that is built upon forgiveness and grace and interdependence, that is very countercultural. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of what being in God's family will be, be like fully. Then finally, and I'll end with this, it tells you that you're forgiven. It tells you that you matter. It tells you that you have a purpose. We have a purpose as a church to fulfill that initial promise to Abraham, that is still our covenant that we are living in and extending God's grace to other people. And then finally, it tells you that you have a future. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's the tense here? You are Abraham's seed if you belong to Christ, not you will be but with all of your faults and all of your failure and all of your sin and all of your doubt, you are Abraham's seed if you are united to Christ, present tense, now, and therefore you have a hope and a future. He made a promise to Abraham that is now yours. In our dryer machine, as I'm sure is your, in yours, there's a lint filter. 
and you're supposed to pull up the lint filter every time and scrape it off because what will happen if not? It'll get clogged and the whole house will catch on fire. I don't know. I've never tried it. But you clean it because after every load, it's full of lint. It's full of tiny little pieces of your clothes that you put in there. When, a dryer, when you dry a load of jeans, your jeans now have that much less fabric. They're that much less sturdy because they've lost some of their fabric. They've lost some of their integrity. And over time, just like everything else in the world, your clothes fall apart. But what does it tell us in baptism? You are clothed, not with something that is perishable, not something that falls apart, but you are clothed with Christ. And these clothes never wear out. Because you are clothed not by your faith, by what you offer, by what you generate, but you are clothed by His faithfulness. Baptism comes upon you. The robe comes upon you. It is put upon you. His clothes, His story, His righteousness, His purposes come upon you, and you will never need new clothes again. Let's pray as we end. Dear Lord, I pray that You would let this very complicated passage be something that guides us this week, that if we miss all of the different complicated connections, that we would hear the one thing, that we can be made new in Jesus, that we can be forgiven, that we can have a purpose, that we can have a hope for the future. And I pray that that would be the case for all of us, wherever we're coming from this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.